Let's talk about rents these days. I've been a renter for most of my life. I've owned a home as well. I still own a home and rent. The home's in a different city. Um, the perils of moving around for a job. Renting these days, certainly if you're trying to find a new place, has become really cost prohibitive for a lot of people. Certainly out here in BC, Vancouver, Victoria, always among the most expensive, lowest vacancy rates, you name it. Um, so when it comes to a surprise for anyone who's tried to rent a place in somewhere like Vancouver or Toronto, that rent, prices of rent are climbing fast. So rentals.ca is an online rental agency. They do a monthly list of what rent is costing these days and how much it's up year over year. So a two-bedroom apartment in Vancouver is up 17% over last year. It's now more than $3,000 on average to rent a two-bedroom apartment in Vancouver. In Toronto, it's up 15% to just under $2,800. And we're seeing those same increases in the suburbs of those cities as well, the Surreys, the Etobicos, the Oakvilles, and so forth. Elsewhere, rent is up to Windsor, 5%, Montreal, 5%, Kingston, Ontario, 17% year over year. So forget trying to buy something. We know how unaffordable that is these days for most people. People are now struggling with the fast rising cost of just trying to keep a roof over their head, especially, especially if you're either moving, get forced out of the place you're in, or are moving to a new city altogether. So what's driving it and what can be done to help? Joining me now is Tom Davidoff. He's an associate professor at the University of British Columbia's Sauter School of Business. Tom, thank you for joining us tonight. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I guess we've, we've noticed, especially here in BC, we really have noticed a significant jump, we think, in the cost of renting. Um, and I'm just wondering if you're seeing the same thing and what might be, be what's behind it, do you think? Yeah, anecdotally, my understanding is uh, the market has gotten uh, much uh, more challenging for renters, uh, fewer places uh, to rent and, and rents rising relative to where we were earlier in COVID, where people were getting a bit of a break closer to downtown, uh, because of course COVID um, reduced demand for urban living uh, if it increased it for suburban living. Where do you think the, the pressures are coming from? I mean, everyone understands if you're spending, if you're buying an investment property and the cost for what you're paying for it is, is much higher than it was, necessarily that will be passed down if you rent it, I would imagine. But is, is that what's going on or is it something more complex than that? No, you know, with prices, I do think lower interest rates have made it economically cheaper to own housing and that's increased the demand to own uh, property. Now, to the extent uh, investors are outbidding owner-occupiers, that should actually give a bit of a break to renters. I think what's happening on the rental side is uh, the pickup again of immigration. I think uh, that that's on again. Students are back in university. And so in emptying out briefly of cities that had happened is getting undone. And we're on to the old problem of a, you know significant immigration into Canada every year among people who, of course, many of whom would like to live in Victoria or Vancouver. Uh, and a difficult supply environment. We've got mountains, oceans, and strict regulations. That makes it hard to build enough housing to keep up with demand. And so uh, we are becoming a scarcer and scarcer resource that's in greater and greater demand. When you look at what the impact then of that is when rentals start to jump, uh, how does it trickle through the economy when, when people are paying more and more money? Yeah, I mean, obviously, the first thing you think is when the economy is doing better, rents tend to rise. It's both population and incomes drive rents. Uh, to the extent rents rise, that's, you know, it's not a loss of money in the system. It's a transfer of resources 
uh, from renters who tend to be younger and lower income to landlords who tend to either be financial institutions like pension funds uh, or uh, their uh, affluent uh, in investor class people. And so, you know, that's a bit of a transfer of resources. Maybe you get a little bit more saving and a little bit less spending when you have a transfer from someone with low income to high income. But I don't think we're talking about, other than, of course, it's unfortunate uh, that people struggle to find a place they can afford. Uh, there's no, you know, macro adverse consequence, except, you know, maybe maybe some mismatch people move out of markets where they'd have the best employment prospects because they can't find a place to live. In the BC context, I think one of the things that's been interesting too is we're seeing this rental increase start to to move into areas that were traditionally less expensive than than the big cities, less expensive than the Vancouver's and the Victorias. Uh, certainly, the cost of housing has gone up in places like Kelowna, places like Nanaimo, but rents too appear to be increasing. At least that's what I'm hearing anecdotally that rents are going up in those markets as well, quite dramatically. Yeah, and and that's been happening in Kelowna previously. Uh, I think uh, a lot of the province was already seeing that, but that really got exacerbated by the uh, COVID uh, shutdown where work from home became possible. And so people looked for places where uh, you could get more space for less money, the so-called drive to qualify uh, on steroids, uh, if you like. And uh, an interesting question is whether work from home is going to persist. If it doesn't, if uh, the bell rings and everybody needs to come back to the office, you wonder if you won't see a uh, almost equal decrease in rents and prices in the outlying areas. One thing I have been reading about is the sort of the not not a sudden, but certainly a more pronounced interest from large investors, as you mentioned earlier, private equity, pension funds and so forth in investing in residential property uh, and how that might change the market somewhat. Do you see that at all? Or is that just one of those things that's out there as a possible explanation, but not proven? Well, we've certainly uh, heard anecdotal evidence of increased interest in institutions. It's in the U.S. I don't think you see it so much here. There was one company that was in the news, but in the U.S. you do have um, large funds getting together and actually buying detached homes. Uh, as opposed to apartments, which are more typically, you know, rental properties. Uh, it makes sense, though. Interest rates are coming up at the moment. I don't know how much room they have to rise, but we're still in, in a low interest rate and rapid rent growth environment. And in that environment, it actually does make a lot of sense that you would see deep-pocketed financial institutions, maybe high-net-worth individuals, but also uh, pension funds, real estate investment trusts, getting a relatively larger share of properties because they've got the deep pockets to pay the value uh, that we see when, when, when interest rates fall and rent growth rises. You know, the value of a property when interest rates are high and rents aren't going anywhere is, you know, approximately 20 years of rent. When interest rates are low and uh, rent growth is high, well, it could be 50, 75 years worth of rent could be the fundamental value of a property. And in that world, it's very hard for uh, a working family to be able to afford to purchase their own home. And it's just going to make more sense uh, for an institution to rent to them. Does it make a difference when institutions, in terms of the way tenants are treated, does it make a difference when institutions who really are looking for a maximum return, let's be honest? Yeah, um, I haven't seen convincing evidence of that. You right. hear people say, well, you know, when a real estate investment trust buys out the nice mom and pop who really weren't in it for the money and were really great landlords, you know, maybe. 
But, uh, you know, do you want to see the Donald Trumps of the world replacing your pension fund as uh, your landlord? I, I don't really buy that. I think we are seeing the pension funds come in because rents are rising. I don't think rents are rising because of pension funds or REITs. I'm speaking with Tom Davidoff, Associate Professor at the Souter School of Business at the University of British Columbia. We're talking about the rising cost of rent, specifically in British Columbia, where it really has gone up in Vancouver and Victoria quite dramatically over the last year or so. But also anecdotally, we're seeing that obviously in places like Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal, where rents are also rising or have risen quite quite a bit since a slight dip at the beginning of the pandemic. After this, we'll talk a bit, bit about what can be done to try to bring rents back down a bit, or at least provide more rentals for people who need them. That's after this. I'm back with Tom Davidoff, Associate Professor at the Souter School of Business at the University of British Columbia. We've been talking about the rising cost of rent, certainly something that we hear a lot about, uh, how much they're rising. It remains somewhat anecdotal, but we do see the cost of the average one-bedroom, two-bedroom apartments really on the rise in places such as Vancouver in Victoria. Is there anything that can be done? Because we know as we head into these election cycles, whether it be provincial or or federal, I guess we won't be seeing a federal election for a while probably, but... Mm -hmm. Uh, when we do go into these cycles, we see lots of promises made about about housing, and it seems like very often not much has changed. Do you think uh, there's anything that policymakers can do to try to tackle the rental issue? Absolutely. There's two real areas of uh, low-hanging fruit in terms of policy, and those are taxes and uh, zoning. So taxes in British Columbia, we're very reliant on income and sales taxes to fund our education our income redistribution, our police, fire, whatever, uh, you know, mostly on income and sales tax and not very much on property tax. If you raised property taxes and cut, say, sales taxes, that would hurt homeowners and help renters. So uh, I actually think that would be more economically efficient because it is so difficult to build. You wouldn't really be scaring much activity off. And it would just be a more sensible way to uh, to fund our, our public goods. But that is a, a politically very heavy lift. And I don't think you're going to see anybody run for office saying, yeah, I want to raise uh, property taxes on garden variety property owners anytime soon. So that's one direction. The other direction where I do think we're going to see action and where the government has been hinting at more action uh, is in terms of land use policy. So I'm near the University of British Columbia, where you know many, many students uh, and faculty come every day enough to justify building a SkyTrain extension out here. Uh, and yet, uh, a few blocks away from campus, you have estate-style zoning in the university endowment plans run by the province. And that's just unjustifiable. I mean, why, you, know, you could build 20-story apartments uh, that would be worth many millions of dollars uh, to the province uh, if, if that zoning were sold off. Uh, but catering to a very small number of homeowners, uh, they sort of preserve the neighborhood amenity by keeping things low rise. We just saw in Oak Bay, I think after nine years, a uh, pro project, and I, I don't know the merits of it, but apparently one that really was pretty consistent with what was already there, uh, getting outright rejected. And about 70%, maybe 80% of uh, land in the province that's residentially zoned can't be more than single family detached. And, you know, it, no, no, no kids growing up today really are expecting to be able to buy a single family detached home. It's an absurd waste of land uh, that subsidizes uh, people rich enough to buy it and penalizes renters. So you've got to open up our urban and suburban land to townhomes and apartment buildings. And doing that can both raise money because governments are able to sell off zoning. So you can raise money for important issues like um, 
providing houses to people experiencing homelessness, while also bringing down the cost of housing uh, for everybody. And I know this is particularly acute in places like Vancouver, where property is limited. Uh, Southern Vancouver Island is similar. But I imagine this problem zoning issue exists sort of patchwork across the country. Uh, Yeah, it depends where you are, of course. You know, I'm guessing, you know, there's certainly markets where it's okay. You know, single family is relatively affordable and and not a crazy use of land. Uh, But when a single family home costs $2 million to say that for the government to intervene and say that that's what has to go on the land, even though the market wants to build apartments, it's hard to call that anything other than socialism for the rich. It, it is politically, though, always such a sensitive topic, topic because I watch it unfold at every level of government, whether it be municipal, provincial, federal. The idea of getting people, well, specifically municipal, getting people to agree to zoning changes can be can be a really heavy lift, as you mentioned, politically, specifically, because you come face to face with your voters who don't want high density right. on, on their on, in their neighborhoods. Right. And, and, and a mistake in British Columbia, and it's not only in British Columbia, it's almost everywhere, it's that land use is controlled at a hyper local level. Right. So everybody recognizes that we need affordable housing, but nobody wants it in their backyard. I think almost everybody would prefer to have trees rather than neighbors. And so why would a city council say yes? There are carrots already, right, which is that if you allow what's currently single family, low density neighborhoods to be uh, converted into apartments, you can make developers pay for that, right? And that means, yes, the neighbors are angry, but some of the neighbors get to sell their land for a lot of money and others get bike lanes or libraries or what have you. What you need, though, is a stick. When you've got 20 jurisdictions in a single metropolitan area, each making land use decisions, thinking about only their own benefit and most likely ignoring the needs of the rest of the region, uh, it's inevitable that you're going to underprovide affordable housing and zoning for apartments. And so the province absolutely needs to step in to coordinate that by saying, hey, you know, you guys didn't meet your uh, your, uh, development uh, target last year. We told you you could do it. You could raise money doing it. You failed to do it. I think the punishment ought to be you guys have to pay higher property tax this year, and that'll teach you uh, to uh, fail to approve more multifamily housing. Have you seen so far in the push, and I know there has been a push, to try and force developers to build more affordable properties as part of their developments? Have you seen that succeed so far, or is that still very much a work in progress? Well, it, it, it's certainly something governments do. You know, my personal view uh, is that a, well, and also a professional view is that it's much wiser. Uh, to do what Burnaby and Vancouver and other jurisdictions have done quite successfully, which is to let builders build uh, whatever's most profitable, but sell uh, the zoning, right? So when you're giving a zoning variance to a developer and letting them build a tall building, you can do one of two things. You can say, give us a bunch of money, or you can hold a lottery for, uh, you know, which most families will benefit zero from, but one family will get a giant prize of a house they wouldn't buy if they were given cash. Uh, you know, it just doesn't make any sense. The last question I had for you is just because it came up this week in conversation. Um, you know, there was a time when people thought, oh, the boomers will retire. Uh, they'll give up their homes and there'll be homes for everyone. They'll be homes for the next generation. It's coming up behind them. Now it seems like most younger people starting out their careers now start them out with this idea that they'll never actually own a home or, or may struggle to own a home, meaning they're sort of confined to being renters for the foreseeable future. Do you think that's correct? Or is that just a, a very short, is that, is that just a nature of just how 
severe the pressures are right now? Well, it makes more sense to rent an apartment. You know, uh, if you're going to rent a property, it makes more sense to rent an apartment, have a landlord tenant relationship in an apartment building uh, than in a single family home, just as a matter of sort of operational efficiency. So as we see less single family housing in more apartments, I think we're likely to see more rental. And again, should we continue to see uh, persistent low interest rates in a world where rents are rising considerably over time, the idea that the traditional model where you have a 10, 5 to 20% down payment and spend you know, maybe 30, 40 years of your life paying off the, the value of the home with a third of your income, that math just gets very tricky because that house can be worth more than 30 or 40 years of 30% of your income and assembling that down payment gets challenging. So I think, you know, normalizing renting, recognizing, encouraging people that you can save in other forms other than owner housing uh, is, of course, a, a natural policy. Because I, I don't believe a, a lot of people are going to, a huge fraction of uh, young people are going to be able to buy. I think a lot of them are going to be stuck renting, uh, which isn't probably most people's favorite. But you know, it gives you a lot of flexibility. Moving is a lot cheaper when you're a renter. You're not putting all your eggs in one financial basket. So if you're able to sell, uh, you know, invest in equities uh, with the money you'd be paying to pay off your loan, uh, it's not clear that you're necessarily much worse over the course of a life. Tom Davidoff, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for your time.